0: There's going to be a scripture that comes onto the screen in just a moment. I'm going to invite you as a household, whether you're on your own or with a group of people, to read this together. Right? It's one verse, one part of chapter 5, verse 8, and a part of verse 9. Here it is. Read it together. All right, well, I want to tell you tales of two taillights. It's going to set up where we're heading this morning. When I I was in high school, that was a long time ago, uh, three other buddies and I did a road trip from Southern Ontario, where I grew up, to Charleston, South Carolina, where one of my friend's sisters was living. And so the four of us piled into our rickety old sports coupe and hit the road for the 16-hour drive uh, the road trips, uh, the road trip tunes were blaring and the two guys who had uh, shared the driving were only a year older than me and were notorious in the small town community I grew up in for getting speeding tickets and uh, we, we thought this was going to be great and I actually have no idea what my parents were thinking letting us go. It's like bizarre to me when I think about it now because from the vantage point of life that I have now, I suspect that they saw it as much as a, of a holiday as it, for them as it was going to be for, for me. So we went down to South Carolina on the way home. We're driving through the hills of Virginia when the fog rolls in. It was dark and it was late. It was drizzling and there was mist. It was thick as pea soup, as my dad would say. And those guys with the heavy, heavy foot that were driving were suddenly very, very tentative. And we were crawling along, desperately looking for the next exit, but you couldn't even read the exit signs because it was so thick, the fog. And this was before cell phones. We couldn't search ahead and find out what was going on. And to be honest, we were all getting a little uneasy and a little uncertain. And then this vehicle pulls up behind us right on our tail. And and that made us even more concerned because we're sheltered Canadian boys among the hillbillies of Virginia. And what did this guy want? What What was he wanting? And he tailed us for a while. And then he passed us, because we were going so slow, and he pulled his old pickup truck in front of us, and then he slowed to our speed. Now, in Virginia, there are two primary license plate slogans. One says, Virginia is for lovers. And the other has a coiled snake with the words, don't tread on me, in bold letters. And this, at least in my memory, was a don't tread on me kind of truck. And all this was making us pretty nervous until we realized that he had seen our license plate in the fog too. It's why he got so close. And he was slowing down in front of us so that we, the foreigners, could follow his taillights. He was leading us on. And he eventually gave us that long, long right-hand signal Okay, So just left it on for a long time as if he's beckoning us to follow him. And and should we? Shouldn't we? We didn't know, but we did. And we pulled into the gas station at the turnoff and he rolled down his window and he welcomed us to Virginia and he asked us if we're okay. And he pointed us to a nearby hotel and then he rumbled off. Tale number two. Years before that, my family was at my relative's house in the dead of winter. A winter storm rolled through and it became pretty clear that if we didn't want to stay the night, we needed to leave. And so my family and another uncle and aunt and my cousins who were also there headed out the long rural lane to the road. And my uncle, who was driving the car ahead of us, took the lead and he told us to follow his taillights and stay close. And I can't recall if my dad and him played some game of rock paper scissors to decide who went first, but apparently my uncle uh, won or lost, depending on your perspective. And he edged down the lane, turning right onto this gravel road, or, or so we thought. And suddenly the taillights in front of the car, in the car on the car in front of us popped up in the air and then stopped. It was strange but we kept following and suddenly we too were stopped and unable to move. Well, it turned out we had followed my uncle's taillights right into the ditch. And I still recall the long walk back to the house in the blizzard to get my other uncle to bring his tractor and pull two, cor- two cars out of the ditch. Tales of two headlights. One led us to a place of rest and peace one led us to a ditch. Whose taillights are you following? I'm going to read another scripture from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Where you are right now, in your home, read it together. You ready? Go. All right. All right. God our Father, we finished last, the message a couple weeks ago with this passage. That God our Father is growing us up toward children, as his children toward maturity. The saints, the communion of the saints, the, the church, the ecclesia are being formed from the inside out toward maturity. That's where Paul has been leading us in this letter and it's what we've been experiencing And here's the beautiful paradox of God's saving and saint-producing work in our lives. This, pay attention, this one's for free. Maturity in the family of God never loses childlikeness. Maturity in the family of God never loses childlikeness. Getting all grown up as an heir in the family of God is learning dependence on our Heavenly Father and growing up is aiming at the imitation of, of our Heavenly Father. We're actually not just trying to be really nice, good people. We're actually, by the work of the Holy Spirit in us, moving toward God-likeness, becoming like God. Yesterday, our family spent hours going through boxes that we hadn't unpacked since our move here to Kelowna back in September. As we went through box after box of old pictures, one of our kids who saw a picture of of my dad when he was younger said, ha! You just—you look just like him. Well, it's true. I've never been thinking about this as much as I have lately. As I get older, I'm looking more and more like my dad. And even though he's been gone for almost eight years, in some ways, I'm still the child growing up to be like my father. In the background, you see, of all this that Paul is talking about here today, and this image of becoming like our father, is the story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15 is one thing to pay attention to as you read the new testament letters there are so many references and so many ways in which what paul is writing is formed and shaped by what we see in matthew mark luke and john the four gospels and so in the story of the prodigal son the youngest child thought he was growing up by following the taillights out of town but he actually grew up when he returned home and imitated the father The older brother thought that he was all grown up by remaining loyal and defending the family business. And though he stayed home, he actually missed that he was to grow up by imitating the father. For both, the invitation is to mature child likeness, the imitation of the father. And the father's imitation becomes joy and fruitfulness. It produces ecclesia. This is what Paul is getting at. The Father's way destroys divisions and discovers peace. Wouldn't that be super helpful right now in the climate that our culture is in? It becomes the revelation of the manifold wisdom of God to the highest places. This is what Paul has been urging the Ephesians toward. Paul is calling real people in the real life of Ephesus, the city of change, to live and walk out God's radical good news the big, hopeful, and mind-boggling truths of Ephesians 1 to 3 become the small, hope-filled living of Ephesians chapters 4 to 6. And we're in the middle of Ephesians chapter 5 today. And so, to mature in God's household is to become more and more like the Father, to act like beloved children. We read that in verses 8 and 9. To walk as children of light. Whose taillights are you following? Paul has been telling us good news all along. He's been urging us out of darkness, death, and division into love, hope, and light of the living God that is found only in Jesus Christ. And as we move from those great spiritual positions that the believer has been gifted by through Christ toward the ethical and moral implications of being the family of God in the world, it's getting more and more personal. I hope you felt this as we've moved along because we started with those amazing truths, those very real and personal and corporate realities of who we are in Christ, but now we're moving into the real stuff where we have to live this out it's more and more personal. This isn't just spiritual or intellectual. This is real life, where you live, what you're facing, what our world is facing right now. And these big truths become painfully small in application. So Paul now contrasts two ways of living that emerge in the city of change. And he implores us to be careful and to take a careful and accurate investigation. Of our living. This is a crucial thing. If you go down to verse 15, you discover this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. And it reminds us back to another thing that Jesus said in the Gospels. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Anyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And then when the storm comes, the wise person lives from the foundation of the rock that is able to withstand storms, And the foolish person lives from a shifting base from a positional reality that can't survive when the world shakes. This is where we are. So Ephesians 5.15 is this invitation to take a careful assessment of how you live. How often have you stopped to do this self-assessment? Am I living wisely? How often do you ask yourself that question? That's usually reserved for New Year's resolutions, right? But we're all in a wake-up call kairos moment right now. Like right now. How am I living? Wisely or unwisely? This is what Paul is wanting us to come to. Mature churches comprised of mature saints who know who they are and imitate their Heavenly Father and live as children of light. And this requires honest self and corporate evaluation. Look carefully. Assess accurately how you live and walk this life. And all this depends on whose taillights you're following. This week, I was talking to a friend of mine named John. He's, he's a First Nations brother. I highly respect the journey of his life, its, its pain and suffering, and his inspiring walk as a disciple of Jesus, often between the two worlds of his people's culture and settler Canadiana. And John's a laboringly powerful storyteller, I love it, and he's, he's unpacked uh, in our conversation as he was unpacking the convulsing world we're living. He told me the story of a digger. Yes, a digger, a digger. A Caterpillar D11, 105,000 kilograms, 936 horsepower, something I know absolutely nothing about. You know, by the way, you could pick up one of these, a 10-year-old Caterpillar D11, for about the the cost of a nice house in Kelowna, in case you're thinking of a career change during COVID-19. John told me about these powerful machines. He loves machines. And specifically about what they can do for something that is called ripping up the land. It's really interesting. Because a six-foot-tall shank, a big piece of metal, can be attached to these monster machines that is pulled and literally rips apart the earth. The video that he talked about showed farmers transforming a watermelon field to an almond grove. And that sounds easy enough. I mean, how hard can it be to get rid of watermelons? Just rip them up. Well, in order to transform the identity and the use of the field, The caterpillar D11 and its six-foot shank needed to rip up the land because almond trees have a root system that will go down three to four feet below the ground. And by ripping a six-foot-deep gorge into the earth, the farmer is making it possible for water and nutrients and all the good stuff to go deep down into the earth. By ripping the earth, he's actually caring for it. The farmer is making it possible for the old to be completely removed and a new fruitfulness and maturity to take root and come to life. And as John labored through this story, his point was becoming clear, perhaps as it is for you. The twinkle in John's eye, mixed with sadness and thoughtfulness, revealed that my friend who loved engines was actually talking about the world as we know it and our Christian call within it. He got to the end, he loved the machine, and then he turned it. He says, there is a deep ripping of the land taking place. A new thing is needed. A new reality must emerge. The North American soul is being exposed, challenged, and a new fruitfulness and maturity is needed. And to get us there, the Lord is doing a deep ripping of the land. Because the cat D11 rips away to the hard pan. In soil science, the hard pan is that dense layer of soil found below the uppermost topsoil. For something new to really take root, that hard pan must be ripped up so that nutrients and moisture can soak in. And we are prone to just think about topsoil. Our family bought a big yellow bag of topsoil this spring to fill our garden boxes. But we're only doing surface-level gardening. We're prone to just pull up watermelons. We like surface-level stuff, not transformation. But God's kingdom, as we've been learning about in Ephesians, isn't surface-level gardening. It's a whole new field in the world. The Ecclesia is the people saved by grace, not by works. The Ecclesia is a people seated with Christ in the heavenly places. The Ecclesia is neither Jew nor Gentile, but a new humanity, the household of God in the world. The Ecclesia is a living, is living a whole new ethic, a life of heaven, no longer walking like the Gentiles. That's what Paul said in chapter four, verse 17. We are learning to walk like our heavenly father, Chapter Five, verses one and two. And to bring about the maturity of the ecclesia, you and I and us together, in order to bring this about, God will go deep. He will rip things up. In Ephesians chapter three here or chapter five, Paul reveals what heavenly childlike, childlikeness looks like. And so let's visualize the contrast so we can clearly see what needs ripping up and whose taillights we're following. And one thing I want to say is that Paul is talking here to the church in the city of change. He is speaking to those who were once dead but are now alive in Christ. What he says is a picture into the culture of Ephesus and what needs to be ripped up. And this is a message, pay attention, my friends, this is a message not to non-followers of Jesus. This is a message to Christians it's a message to the ecclesia, to the church, to those who call themselves Christian. So if you say you're a follower of Jesus, start taking notes. We're going to walk over here to the whiteboard, and uh, we're going to do a little bit do a little bit of uh, writing today. Hopefully you can follow along. Hopefully, as well, I can do a good enough job doing this. I need my marker. Uh, You'll have to forgive my handwriting, but hopefully, hopefully we're learning forgiveness and you can get there. So I've, I've, I've contrasted the two because in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 21, it can, it can get a little muddled as Paul unpacks a bunch of things. And so we're setting them in contrast to each other here so that you can see and understand the taillights that you're following. Now, there's taillights home. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 8, let us live and walk as children of light. Okay? This is our call. He contrasts that to chapter 5, verse 6, where he says, let no one deceive you with empty words, uh, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There is children of disobedience. That's the taillights into the ditch. Now, Contrasting beneath this is actually two contrasting sets of threes. In chapter 5, verse 9, it says that the God, as we walk as children of light, we're following something the God that is good and right and true. Well, Paul begins in verse 3, he says, "...but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper for the saints." Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So there's a comparison of two sets of threes. Sexual immorality, impurity, and coveting. This is the unfruitful living from the dark mind and the hardened heart that Paul had described that was the Gentile way back in chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. Now, what are these things that Paul's talking about? Well, sexual immorality, the Greek word was actually porneia. It's from where we get the English word pornography. It's rooted in that. But it's this deep selling off Or the giving away of faithfulness, of fidelity, and of sexual purity. It's giving my body to find its identity and to serve sex. Rooted in so much of what is broken in our culture, my friends, is a sexual immorality. If you've given yourself to Jesus, this is something that reflects the taillights heading toward the ditch. This is the stuff that God's wrath was poured out on. It's not the goodness of God. And then there's impurity, which is an interesting Greek word. It meant the mixing of what is clean with what is unclean in verse uh, 4, 19, in chapter four, verse 19, Paul talked about these acts of impurity that led us from uh, being led where basically, we, we cash it all in and we move from sensitivity uh, to living with apathy and led by sensuality, where we mix good with what is dark. I grew up, as I said earlier, in Southern Ontario, and so I brought along some of Southern Ontario's best stuff here. Uh, it's maple syrup. Now, what's fascinating about maple syrup is if you read the ingredients, uh, there isn't any. It's just pure. It's not mixed with anything. It's just pure. Buy some of that other stuff, read the ingredients. Yeah, it's a whole bunch of stuff you can't explain, right? This is the purity that God invites us into into that which is not mixed with anything else. We are not mixing good with dark. Impurity is that which takes, that, takes, takes what is meant to be good and begins to twist it and mix it with other things. For instance, the desire to see right systems happen in a culture, but now we mix it with anger and violence and rage as the way to solve the problem. It becomes impure. Impure. And it's a following into the ditch. And then there is coveting. In some of your translations, it'll say greed. The word there is actually, is literally this. And I'll say it as it actually sounds, more have. (laughs) That's actually what the word means, more have. I want more. It's this deep desire to lust after the temporal, and to place ultimate value on things. And this, says Paul, this is idolatry. And so the three tensions here of sexual immorality, impurity, and coveting, which are the polar opposite of the God who is good and right and true, this is the life that we are to be led into. Inherent goodness, because God is good. Righteousness, that which God approves of. This is a justice word, doing the just and right thing because that's what God does. And then this word that is true, aletheia, it meant reality versus illusion. In the Greek world, that word meant moral truth. It meant that which was real as opposed to that which was false. The taillights home. the taillights to the ditch. And then Paul sets up a number of other contrasts as you look at this passage, and it's worked all the way through. And so let's just quickly uh, look at them. I'll try to fill some of this in. So, so in verse four, he says, what? We're to speak. We're to speak thanksgiving. As opposed to verse four, speaking, and there's a bunch of words there, but I'll just put filth. Or foolishness. So rather than using our words to foolishly slander or to coarsely joke or to rip other people apart, we are to speak thanksgiving. There's a contrast in what comes out of our mouth. For out of our mouth comes what is in our hearts, says Jesus. And then in verse 8, there's another contrast. He says, uh, you are light. So you're light in order to bring light. He says that's in contrast to the fact that you were, and it's not just that if you look at the text, it's not that you, that, you, that you were in darkness, it's that you were darkness. And in verses 11 to 12, he says it's even shameful to talk about what's done in secret for those that are following the taillights to the ditch. So we are, in Christ, brought to be light in order to bring light, children of light, children of our Heavenly Father, as opposed to those who were darkness and who resort to shameful stuff and secrecy. It come, we come into the light. And then in verses 10 and 17, we start to see this seeking after God's pleasure. What makes God happy? What will make our Heavenly Father happy? What will please Him? What will bring a smile to our Heavenly Father's face as opposed to seeking selfish pleasure? And you can see the contrast all the way down here, right? Seeking selfish pleasure. Each one of these drive us to live out of that place instead of the heart of our Father who is good and right and true. And then Paul comes to that... Imagery again from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the wise and the unwise, the wise man and the foolish man, the wise woman and the foolish woman. So the wise life, says Paul, is one that salvages the moment. It's one that's filled with the Holy Spirit, verses 16 through 18. And this is a beautiful, beautiful picture. The wise person salvages time. The Greek word there is actually, uh, it means to ransom or redeem, or it even has a marketplace meaning, which is to seize the good sale. <laughs> Aren't you all longing And for that, seize the good sale. One of my little uh, things I love to do is try to find great soccer jerseys at thrift stores. So over the years, I found some pretty amazing deals. Oftentimes, they were deals that the, I'm pretty sure the store didn't realize what they were doing or what they had. Sometimes thrift stores are stocked by people who don't always know what they're hanging on the shelf. So one day I'm in a thrift store, and I come across this jersey right here. Barcelona, Nike, Nike, Nike. I'm not promoting Cutter Airways. Pray for Cutter, by the way. They have a really high rate of COVID right now. But I see this jersey, I look at the... The tag's still on the label. The tag's still hanging off. I'm like, oh my goodness. I found a real Barcelona jersey. It's even got the, like, the authentic on it. Do you know how much it was for? Two bucks. I went right to the cash register. Boom, got it and went. Because I was going to salvage the moment. That's what Paul is saying the wise person does with the moment of time that they're in. Not wasting it finding the moment and salvaging it, redeeming the time because days are evil and in the midst of what is evil, there is redemption to be had. And so the wise person salvages, finds the deal and goes for it. The unwise person is squandering the moment. Now this shows up in verse 18 where the word debauchery comes in. Paul says, don't be drunk with wine. That leads to debauchery. So don't drown your sorrows in unwise stuff. That leads to debauchery. You know what the word there is? It's really interesting. It's asotia. And it means waste because of excess. It means the useless uh, vessel. It means the throwaway life. The unwise person, in the midst of the days that are evil, squanders the moment and just wastes it. It's filled with foolishness. It's a life of foolishness as opposed to a life that is filled with the Spirit of God. Do you start to see how contrastingly disturbing and beautiful this is? And then this starts to pour out in the way in which we live with one another. And so Paul says something really fascinating in verse 19. He says, let us sing to one another. It's not even that we're singing to God, he says. It's sing to one another. You know what happens in your house if you have a good tune on and everybody starts singing and you're kind of singing with one another and to one another, and there's there's a new joyful way of, of, uh, of living and being that comes alive in your home? This is what's meant to happen within the body of Christ. We're to sing life words to one another, to have words that are praise to God to one another. It's a beautiful picture, the joyful house, as opposed to the other side in verse 4, if we go back in our memory to the beginning of the passage, where it's life-sucking words, life-sucking, coarse-joking, foolish talk, foul. It's disturbing. And then Paul ends... Ephesians chapter 5 and we're gonna, he's going to transition here to take it to the Christian home and we'll look at that next week but the transition here is actually rooted in something crucial it's rooted in submission so the tail lights home not only do we sing life words to one another but we're actually submitting to one another as opposed to 5 verse 6 where we are submitting, whoops, well oh, that should be submit, sorry. We are submitting to empty words. Do you see the contrast? In verse 6, it says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Let no one say something. You go, yeah, I'm going to submit to that. That makes a lot of sense. I like how that feels because it stokes my desire for sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness. Instead, we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We are to arrange our lives, and that Greek, that word submission, which in our culture sounds, gets so beaten up and so misunderstood, that word submission simply means I'm going to place always your rank above mine. I am going to submit myself under your rank. And ironically, this is exactly the way God functioned. Think about it. Jesus made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He gave up his rank, and he gives himself for us. He lived the mature, father-like life, and this is the ethic of the family of God, as opposed to those who are looking for words that are empty and vain and promise us nothing and only lead us toward a ditch. Do you see the contrast between the two, my friends? Do you see where Paul is leading us? Do you see who you're following? Ephesians chapter five, verses eight and nine are gonna come on the screen for you again right now. Please take a look and read it out loud where you are right now. Friends, are you walking into mature childlikeness? Submission is a necessary condition for childlikeness. This is the crux of the matter. Will I submit out of reverence for Christ? I didn't come into the kingdom demanding my rank. I didn't come to that position as an heir, an adopted child, because I demanded my place. I came in by submitting, and we will live the ethics and the morality of the kingdom of God through submission, by following the right taillights home. Our Father calls us to be true to His nature and what He does what he was and is and will be on our behalf he is calling us to be like him are you walking as wise or as unwise are we the saints the full heirs the ecclesia squandering our inheritance is there a deep ripping of the land going on in you whose tail lights are you following Would you steal your heart with me? Maybe steal your body, even. Just close your eyes. Maybe hold out your hands. Maybe picture taillights in front of you. Who's driving that car? Who's driving? If it is the culture, you will hit a ditch. If it's the risen King of Kings, who is our Savior and Lord. He will lead us into morality and an ethic that smells like heaven and is hope and good news when all is crumbling. Whose taillights are you following? Lord Jesus, we submit ourselves to you. Some of us, even though we've named you as Lord, have not yet unlearned sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness. In fact, sometimes we've sought out those who will actually make it sound like it's part of your plan. Oh, God, forgive us. Some of us living in secrecy with things that are, you're, you desire to heal and to redeem. Some of us have been unwise. We're, we're like wasting the moment. Like we're totally wasting the moment. Oh God help us to be wise and salvage this moment, salvage this time, redeem it, make the most of it, both internally, individually, corporately as a people and for your purposes in this world. Oh God, King of kings, Lord of lords, our heavenly Father, we want to be like you, We want to be like you. Grow up to imitate you who is light. We want to walk as children of light. So fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. We give you every nook and cranny. Expose what you need to expose. Rip out and pull out the weeds that need to come out. And it's going to hurt, and we might argue, because we're prone to do that. But just have your way, because you're leading us into maturity, And you're leading us to be an ecclesia for your purposes and your glory in the world. And we don't want anything other than for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh God, we need this now. We need it now. Help us, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen, Amen.